I want to welcome you back to our Easter sermon series, Living Hope. It was good last week to talk about how Jesus can help us to overcome the shame of our past, that we can have hope for our past. Today we're going to be talking about how in Christ we can have hope for today. Next Sunday, we will talk about how we can have hope for the future. We're going to be zeroing zeroing in on how the resurrection can cause us to live today a bold, adventurous, risk-taking life. Recently, I have led two different groups through a book titled Spiritual Leadership. It's by a guy that's named Oswald Sanders. And it's been great to lead both of these groups through this book. One was a group of local pastors. Another one was aspiring leaders in our congregation. And both times that I went through this material with these groups, there was a statement in particular that really stuck out to me. And here it is. The greatest achievements in the history of missions have come from leaders close to God who took courageous, calculated risk. And then this sentence here has just like so resonated with me. More failure comes from an excess of caution than from bold experiments with new ideas. A friend who filled an important global post in Christian outreach recently remarked that when he surveyed his life, most of his failures came from insufficient daring. I think of Bill Bright, Dave Steadman. What do you think about these comments? What do you think about Sanders' comments? I think they accurately describe many people in this world. Many people's life verse is, not I cannot do all things through Christ that strengthens me, but live on the side of caution. Live there, build a house there, retire there, die there. And the rest of the people who don't live on the side of caution, at the very least, err on the side of caution. If you look at studies and reports of elderly people and the regrets that they have now that they are nearing death, they say things like, I wish I would have risked more. I regret not being more adventurous. I regret worrying about things that never came to pass that were outside of my control. I regret not having the courage to follow my calling. I regret not having the courage to take more risk in my career. I regret that I didn't seek to accomplish greater things. I regret worrying about what people thought of me. I regret worrying about money. I regret worrying in general. Check this out from the Business Insider. In our research at Cornell University, 
I asked hundreds of the oldest Americans that question, what they regretted most. I expected big ticket items, an affair, a shady business deal, addictions, that kind of thing. I was therefore unprepared for the answer they often gave. I wish I hadn't spent so much of my life worrying. Over and over, as the 1,200 elders in our Cornell Legacy Project reflected on their lives, I heard versions of, I would have spent less time worrying. I regret that I worried so much about everything. Indeed, from the vantage point of late life, many people feel that if given a single do-over in life, they would, have take, they would take all the time back if they spent fretting anxiously about the future. Their advice on this issue is devastatingly simple and direct. Worry is an enormous waste of your precious and limited lifetime. They suggested training yourself to reduce or eliminate worrying as the single most positive step you can make toward greater happiness. The elder's message is also consistent with research findings. The key characteristic of worry, according to scientists who study it, is that it takes place in the absence of actual stressors. That is, we worry when there is actually nothing concrete to worry about. This kind of worry ruminating about possible bad things that may happen to us or our loved ones is entirely different from concrete problem solving. A critically important strategy for regret reduction, according to the elders we interviewed, is increasing the time spent on concrete problem solving and, dis- and drastically eliminating time spent worrying. One activity enhances life, whereas down the road, the other is deeply regretted as a waste of our all-too-short time on earth. Always, it's always interesting when scientists figure out something that Jesus said thousands of years earlier. Look, I guess I expect the world to live like this, full of living on the side of caution, full of worrying incessantly. I mean, think about it. If you do not believe in the God that we just sang about, if you do not believe in him, why would you get out of bed in the morning? There is so much to fear. This world is a crazy place, right? And so I understand why the world lives this way cautious and full of worry the problem is we in the church often live this way that's the problem this is the approach that is just as rampant in our churches i think a big problem And a great sin in the church is not that we have people taking foolish risks, is that we have people that aren't risking enough. They are so afraid of doing the wrong things that they fall into the opposite but equal error and they do nothing. And therefore, they fail to do the good that God has called them to do. Sure, they avoid taking action that they shouldn't, but they also avoid taking the action that they should. The the fear of failure paralyzes us. But here's the thing. 
if we avoid all possible defeats, guess what? We avoid all possible victory. If we avoid risk like the plague, reward will avoid us like the plague. I am fully convinced that as Christians, we have more reason than any other group on planet Earth to live a life that errors on the side of risk, not on the side of caution. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus is alive. He is the resurrected king that is, re- that is resurrecting people all over this world. Let's pray, and then we're going to look, look at how the re- resurrection should, can and should, cause us to live adventurous, risk-taking lives. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that your mercies are new each morning. When I felt the sun as I walked out of the door of my home, just reminded as it was giving warmth to my body, that it's something I don't deserve, but is a gracious gift from you. We don't deserve to be sitting here. We don't deserve to be in a comfortable sanctuary with nice clothes on, enjoying the camaraderie and the fellowship of your people, singing about your great work. Thank you, Lord, that you give it to us anyways. But Lord, I fear that the comfort we experience here keeps us from the challenges that you have called us to face. Lord, I fear that sometimes the God of comfort is really on the heart or really on the throne of our hearts. And it's comfort that we are worshiping. Lord, I pray that as we look at the promises that are contained in 1 Peter 1, that you would be on the throne. That we would live extraordinary lives because you are extraordinary. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last, last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at Peter and how he really messed up when his best friend Jesus needed him the most when he was in the garden sweating drops of blood, and then eventually when he was nailed to the cross, Peter denied even knowing Jesus, not once but twice and then three times. But we talked about how Jesus redeemed that shameful past of Peter, and he can redeem your shameful past because we all have skeletons in our closet. We all have baggage. Jesus, he can redeem it. He can leverage it for his glory and your good. Today, we're going to look at how did this Peter, who was such a coward, even though he said he would never be, went from Peter the coward to Peter the bold, Peter the brave, Peter the risk taker. 
I think there are answers in the passage that we are anchored in this Easter season. Let me read it to you briefly, not the whole thing that Kevin read, but let me just read some of it again to you. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, go into verse 2, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. We were rejoicing this morning. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody in a trial this morning? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look, there are several statements in what I just read that caused, that transformed Peter and caused him to live this life that erred on the side of risk. And I believe that if we are anchored in these truths, if we dwell in them and if we live out of them, we will be transformed into bold, courageous Jesus followers that have great impact on our networks of influence. How did the resurrection transform Peter into a risk taker? First of all, Peter knew that God was in control. I know we say this all the time, and so it can become lifeless and stale, but this has to so be something that we live out of, that God is in control. In verse 2, Peter wrote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see, for Peter, Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, it was a miracle. All of it. It was one miracle after another, but it wasn't a miracle that just accidentally happened. It was pre-arranged by God. That's what it means. Predestined. It's, it's, it's pre-arranged by God. It was God's plan all along. It wasn't plan B or C or D. It was plan A. If you were to read further in our passage before the foundation of the world, it was the plan. And if it was the plan before the foundation of the world, that Jesus would come and, and live inside, 
The second part of the Trinity would come, second person of the Trinity would come and live inside this nervous teenager from the middle of nowhere, live a perfect life, die an atoning death, defeat death by rising from the dead. If this was the plan, and Peter had experienced it because he saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes, then surely God was in control. He was truly almighty. He was truly all wise. He was truly all loving. The God of the universe. So that was first for Peter. God is sovereign. He's in control. That caused him to live courageously and take risks. Secondly, Peter knew God was his protector. Peter believed that this all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God that was working out his plans was also keeping him by the same resurrecting power that raised Jesus from the dead. Peter uses that word. We are being kept by God. Look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The Greek word that's translated kept here, it means not just that God was keeping an eye out for Peter, Not that he was, you know, kind of looking after Peter. It means to guard. It means military protection. It means a group of soldiers that are constantly on patrol, looking for even a hint of danger. You see, Peter knew that he was in the shadow of the Almighty's wings. He could trust him with his life. That meant that even when things were out of control in Peter's life, they were never out of God's control. And that's why Peter was able to write in verses 6 through 8, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Peter was so convinced of God's sovereignty and protection that he saw his trials as permitted by God. And if they were permitted by God, they were necessary. And if there was a kinder, if there was a gentler, if there was an easier, better way to produce this genuineness of faith, this maturity of faith in Peter, then God surely would have done it that way. But since he hasn't, this is the best way. Even in Peter's trials, Peter was convinced that God was working for good. He was leveraging them for God's glory and his ultimate good. Verses 7 and 8 are really like Peter's version of Paul's statement in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And James, the brother of Jesus' statement in James 1. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God 
to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look, Peter was free to swing and miss. Peter was free to fail. Why? He had a sovereign God that was keeping him with his mighty power. How else did the resurrection transform Peter the coward into Peter the bold, the brave, the risk taker? Peter knew that the trials in life were momentary and fleeting when compared to eternal life in the age to come. Peter, he says so in the verses that I read to you, knew that he was going to inherit, inherit an inheritance that was undefiled, uncorrupted, unfading, full of honor, glory, and praise. Peter also knew that his life compared to life in the age, age to come was extremely short. That life was nothing but a breath. In this age. Consequently, he knew that the trials in his life were also what? But a breath. Temporary. Fleeting. And it was this knowledge that allowed him to err on the side of risk. If trials came because he made a mistake, it would only be temporary. It would only be, as he says in verse 6, for a, I think it's 6, a little while. You know, I've never heard an elderly person say that life went really slowly. I've heard them say, boy, um, I can't believe I made it to 80. I've heard them say that. I've never heard them say, boy, it took forever to get here. Right? We are all going to be dead like in two seconds. It's just the reality. It is like a vapor, the Bible says. And I want to encourage you that the days may be long, I was told, in regards to parenting, but I think it applies to all life. But the years are short. The days may be long, but the years are short. Look, right now, your days may feel long because you're, you've been in one trial after another. The months may have seemed long. Maybe this, this past year was just, it was winter all year long. It was just long and difficult. And just when you thought you were past one thing, right around the corner, here comes another life valley. But they end. This too shall pass. It's for a season. Most of our difficulties, they leave in this life. But if they don't leave in this life, they surely will in the age to come for those who are connected to Christ through faith. 
and that life is literally, it's, it's just about here for all of us. Peter knew this, and so with his short life in this age, he wanted to live sold out for Jesus. John Piper, you ever hear his message on shells? Jim, you showed it in an adult Sunday school. He was talking about these retirees that want to, their, their goal in retirement is to walk the beaches and collect shells. And he's, shells? Really? There is a war raging in the spiritual realm. And you want to spend your retirement collecting shells? You should check it out, you retired people. Look, Peter's like, look, trials are going to come your way. No matter what, no matter how you live, there will be trials in this life. I should, ju- if I'm going to have trials, I, may, I might as well have trials because I erred on the side of risk. I mean, that's kind of what he's getting at in 1 Peter 3.17. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Look, in this life, you're going to suffer. Suffer for doing good. In this life, you're going to have trials. Have trials because you're swinging and sometimes missing. May that be your mentality, may it be mine. Fourthly and finally, the reason that Peter was Peter the bold and no longer Peter the coward is because he knew that the Spirit of God lived inside of him. In verse 1, he speaks of the sanctification of the Spirit. He's talking about this gift of the Spirit that was given to him after Jesus was raised from the dead, before his ascension to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, Jesus poured out his resurrecting, powerful, mighty Spirit on Peter and the other disciples at that time. And in fact, Jesus commanded his followers, do nothing until the Spirit comes upon you. Because you would, I don't know, I'm thinking Jesus was thinking, because I know you will screw it up. So just go in a room and pray. And keep praying, don't talk to anybody, just do nothing until my Spirit is unleashed upon you. And then you'll be able to do the things that I've commanded you to do. And that's what happened, right? In the room, spirit poured out on them. And what we see is that the spirit had the sanctifying effect, sanctify, transformation. The the disciples were transformed into these cowards that were courageous, that weren't so concerned about their comforts, that had this amazing ability to remember Jesus' teachings and then teach those accurately to other people. They had God's spirit living inside of them with giving them the assurance that Jesus truly was with them just as he promised he would be after he commanded them, go and make disciples. And that marks the difference. And all of them marched to their death for Jesus. 
talk about not playing it safe. Jesus, church history tells us, or Peter, church history tells us, was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the way that his master Jesus was. He didn't, he just didn't, it felt like that would be disrespectful. Look, all throughout scriptures, we have these stories of God's people who didn't play it safe. And what does God tell them? I will be with you. Abraham didn't play it safe, left his homeland for a completely new country. God said to him, I will show you, I will be with you. Moses, he was fearful of living boldly for God. He was fearful of partnering with God to see Israel delivered from the Egyptians. God said to him, I will certainly be with you. Gideon, he wanted to play it safe. And not fight against the Midianites. Gideon was afraid. They were a powerful, nasty army. God said to him, I will be with you. To the nation of Israel that was exiled and was oppressed by one pagan nation after another, God said to them in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The same hand that was keeping Peter tightly in its grip. To Joseph, who was reeling from the shock of Mary's pregnancy, God said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, his name will be Emmanuel. Joseph, I'm with you. To Mary, who was reeling from the shock of her pregnancy, God said through his angel, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. You see, there is no way to explain Peter and the rest of the disciples' radical transformation apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changed everything for them. And it can change everything for you. It can change you into a person who is not timid, who's not afraid to take risks, who's not afraid to swing, who's not afraid to shoot for the moon. So, How does this work itself out at the street level? Let me just briefly give you a few things. If you have not come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you need to do so today. You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. I looked this up, and I think I'm sharing this next Sunday. I think there's 2,500 people that die unexpectedly every day in America. You could be one of them. You need God living inside of you. You need the resurrected king resurrecting you. Because once you have that, then through his spirit, you're going to have him guiding you, resourcing you, making up for your weaknesses. You're going to have him working out everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly for your good. 
and you'll learn how to live out of this reality. For those of you who have already invited Jesus in, you've got to do whatever it takes to partner with Jesus to live out of this reality that Jesus is with you. And if he is with you, there's nothing that can stand against you. See, oftentimes we are like practical atheists. We say we believe all this stuff about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, and then we live as if none of it's true. In our practice, we are like we don't even believe. Look, if you're living out of this reality, guess what? You're not going to agonize over decisions nearly as much. You're not going to require absolute certainty when you make decisions, which, by the way, is an illusion. It is. You're going to feel the freedom to fail because you know if you do, God will leverage it for good anyways. You're going to feel free to take calculated risks, not foolish risks. I don't want to get any emails or texts that says, Pastor Shane says, just do whatever and it doesn't matter because God will make it all better anyway. After much prayer and seeking wise counsel, we, retune, we will routine, routinely, 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 we'll routinely put ourselves in circumstances that are humanly impossible. whose success cannot be secured any other way than if God's mighty hand moves in acts. Which means our dreams will get bigger. Our vision will get bigger. Our accomplishments will get bigger. And a greater amount of people risk impacted for Christ due to our calculated risk betting on God. And guess what? Your faith will increase. Because if you routinely put yourselves in situations where success is solely dependent upon God's mighty hand moving, because it's humanly impossible, and he comes through, which he will, or he'll do something better if he doesn't, guess what's going to happen to your faith? You might get to the place where you're willing to die for it like Peter. Look, I believe that a lot of people don't know the power of God because they never live in situations where they really need them on the surface. Yeah. I will say it again, and I'll end with this. Out of all the people on planet Earth, we Jesus followers should worry the least Risk the most and make the greatest impact on the world for good because Jesus is alive and he is with us. The goal is not to arrive safely at death. The goal is to arrive at death the same way Jesus did. Poured out. Spilled out. Nothing left to give. You know when you're running a race, what do you do on the final lap? You kick. You get to the finish line. We're in the final lap. Some of you are like on the like 
last five feet of the final lap. Some of us may be dead tomorrow. Hey, if you were going to live out of this reality, how can you put yourself in a position financially that the only way things will work out is if God moves his mighty hand? How can you take calculated risk in how you spend your money in order to love God more fully and to love others? In his name. How can you take calculated risk in how you spend your time? How can you take calculated risk in how you raise your children to love God and to love others? If everything that you touch was guaranteed to succeed, what would you touch? What would you do? And if it failed, it would just be used for God's glory and your betterment. What would you do with your life? What things would you start? What would you stop? How would you start your day? How would you end your day? What would you increase in your life? What would you decrease in your life? Look, and I promise this is it. Jim Elliott, anybody? Missionary to a people in Ecuador that were unreached. He got speared to death. Reaching, talk about life risk. Yeah, spear. Look, this is what he said. Forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with. But we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to death with principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men, but brass, outspoken boldness is required to take part in the comradeship of the cross. We are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us, for we are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Can't help but think of Baker Mayfield. But you should wake up feeling dangerous tomorrow because Christ is living inside of you. Let's pray. Lord, we so easily, and I know that I'm a part of this group, can get so carried away with the cares of this life. Getting our kids to their activities, making dinner, cleaning the house, doing laundry, folding it, seeing it get unfolded, folding it again, putting it away, if we get that far. And we can forget that there's a life to come. We can forget that we are in a spiritual battle. We are in the midst of a war. Lord, thank you that that enemy, the great enemy of Satan, sin, and death, you have killed it. We We were reminded of that in adult Sunday school, but like a rattlesnake that is dead, that, that head can still be deadly if you were to step on it. That's how our enemy is. He's a defeating foe. 
but yet he still can do damage. Lord, may we join you in the fight. May we risk and dare for your sake, for your glory's sake, and for the sake of people that are still in the enemy's grip. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.